I am guessing that some of you have found yourself in a situation where you have needed a letter of recommendation from someone, either to enter an academic program, or perhaps to get a new job, or perhaps you've been in a situation where you're asked to write a letter of recommendation, and maybe it's been by someone who you say, oh yeah, I absolutely can talk you up and and describe you in glowing terms, and maybe it's been by someone who you're not so sure about. Dave's nodding. This has happened to Dave. Well, I'll tell you what, in this day and age, you can't you got to be careful before you just jump in and write, oh yeah, this guy's just no good and don't bother to hire him because everyone's worried about getting sued. You call human resources and somebody got fired for something horrible and, and they're like, we're worried about getting sued. All I can tell you is that he worked here and this is the day he stopped. But if you're clever, you can still get the message across. Say, for example, you're writing about someone who was chronically absent from the job. You simply say things like, A man like him is hard to find. It seemed her career was just taking off. Wait for it. Ah, you get it now. Or someone who's lazy. You would indeed be fortunate to get this person to work for you. Or I can assure you that no person would be better for the job. Or someone who never quite cared enough to learn the job was always out of the know, you might say, there is nothing you can teach a man like that. Or, I most enthusiastically recommend this candidate with no qualifications whatsoever. And of course, you want to close with something like this. All in all, I cannot say enough good things about this candidate or recommend him too highly. I cannot say enough good things about the... Or, perhaps, I would urge you to waste no time making this person an offer of employment. Now, these things are all following the letter of the law, but with a completely different spirit. And Paul talks about that in this passage in 2 Corinthians 3. But before that, he talks about letters of recommendation. It's almost like I found the perfect opener. And here he is, in these first six Verses, he's answering the question that he raised just a couple verses earlier that we looked at last week when he's talking about how he and they bring the fragrance of the gospel with them everywhere and how he as an apostle especially has this duty and how that, that smell of the fragrance of the gospel is to those who are perishing, smell of death, and to those who are being saved, the smell of life. And he recognizes that this is something big, something epic, and so he asks the question, who is sufficient for these things? Before he answers the question in the positive, which he'll do in our text today, we saw him last week say, we're not, this is the the negative, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And he then begins to, even in earnest now, defend his apostleship. And in doing so, he roots these things in contrast to those false teachers and false apostles who had made their their base of operations Corinth, he shows that he is rooted entirely in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he begins with this rhetorical question. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? You see, he recognizes that anything he says might be twisted and used against him. That this this has happened again and again. Throughout Romans, he does this a lot. He'll say, what shall we say then? And, And he'll 
go into something that he's been accused of saying that isn't quite what he has said. And so, what am I doing? Am I commending myself to you? It expects the answer no with the, the grammar that's used. Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? See, his opponents, and those are the many from verse 17, had come to Corinth with very impressive documents. Perhaps forged, perhaps not. It is not sure exactly how they, they got such a pedigree with all these letters that said, these are men to be trusted. And they came and they said, look at all this impressive stuff. And then when they leave Corinth, they would say, by the way, you know, we've, we've ministered here. How about you give us some letters as well? And we'll kind of add to our credibility here. They're always building up their own name. And then there's the question they have of, you're always talking about this Paul. Where are his letters? Where, where, where are his papers? It's like the, the Gestapo, right? Where, papers, please. I've seen this myself in, in Christian circles, even amongst ministers, like it was happening here. My, my pastor growing up, Ed Pedley, He'd been a youth pastor for years and years. He was called to ministry. He never went to seminary. He was, he was midlife when he made the transition. And when he first became a pastor, he hadn't even gone to, to college to get his Bible degree. And he had had a number of times when, when people would say to him, oh yeah, where did you go to school? And he'd say, well, I haven't been to quite the school yet, but you know, I've got a lot of ministry experience and I, I really understand the word. And they would just turn and walk away. That happened to him more than once. Happened to him even after he got a, a religion degree because he didn't have the master of divinity. How can this happen in the church where the requirement for entrance into the body is to acknowledge there is nothing I've done to earn my way in. The only thing I've done is to say I can't possibly earn it and accept God's grace. Now, Paul, don't, don't get this wrong, Paul was not against the idea of writing someone a referral or a, or a letter of commendation. If we look at the end of some of his epistles, we see that happening. Romans 16, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church of Chantria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. He's saying, this woman is a leader in the church and you need to accept her as if she were me. That's a letter of commendation or recommendation. And we're in 2 Corinthians. If you turn back one page to the end of 1 Corinthians, he does the same thing with Timothy. He says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord, as am I. This practice continued on, even up through the Council of Chalcedon in 451. We, we read it written down in the canons that clergymen were prohibited from officiating in any way in a new town where they weren't known unless they had a letter from their bishop that would vouch for them. And we have the same sort of thing today. You go into my study, you find hanging on the wall an ordination certificate, which, by the way, my pastor Ed also has, uh, that said, this church on this day set this person apart for ministry. And they speak for his his, his being worthy of doing the ministry, although the worth does not come from himself. That he is sufficient to the task. And, and we see that it's a necessary thing, unfortunately, but there are dangers in it. Just a couple of years before this book was written, uh, we read in, in the book of Acts about a guy named Apollos, 
going from Ephesus into Achaia, which is where Corinth was. Corinth was the capital of Achaia. And when he went there, the Christians in Ephesus wrote letters saying, accept this guy and, and understand that he is a good teacher and in good standing among the apostles, which was a good thing to do. But then very shortly after that, we see Paul writing 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, there are divisions among you. Some say, I follow Paul. Others, I follow Peter. Others, I follow Apollos. Others, no, hey, I follow Christ. I don't get caught up in all that stuff. When we get focused on this kind of man-centered, who has the most clout, who has the best papers, today maybe it's not paper at all, we're in a paperless society, right? Who has the most followers, perhaps? Oh, this guy's only got like 203 followers on Twitter. Who cares what he says? Well, maybe it's the most biblical thing out there and what you need to read. We become uh, easily preoccupied with human, human approval. And that has got to be the last thing on your mind if you're a Christian because the gospel will never have the world's human approval. It will always be mocked and derided and hated and we have to come to terms with that early on if we're going to mature in the faith. So he's not against the idea But Paul says to them, I am your spiritual father. I planted this church. I brought the gospel to you, and I brought the true gospel. I don't need references, but if you insist on them, verse 2, he kind of flips the script a little bit and says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. See how he did that? You want a recommendation? Look in the mirror. You are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. This is not the kind of letter that you you hold in your hands, but it's written on hearts. It's a living letter. And this letter is very legible. People, everyone can read it. He says, all can see it. It's read by all men. In 1 Corinthians, he told them, your faith is, it's commended by all. And when people look at you, they say, wow, you've received the gospel. It's done its work. Galatians 6, we read, See what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Paul's getting old. He says, give me that to Timothy or whoever's writing it down. I'm going to sign it myself. Look how big these letters are. You can read it from across the room. Well, this letter that's written on the heart is far more legible. Whoever looks at this church can see the fruit of this ministry. This goes along with the aroma stuff we talked about last week. Going around being the fragrance of Christ. So these changed lives of the Corinthians give a clear message from Christ testifying to Paul's apostleship as a true apostle, as the one who brought the the gospel, he says, delivered by us. He's said this already in 1 Corinthians. If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. The changed lives of those to whom he ministered vouched for him. You may want to ask yourself in this moment, whose lives are your referral letter? Whose life have you spoken into, reached into, ministered to? Who who have you sat down with when they were broken? And and who have you preached the gospel to recently? Who, Who is there to be your letter of recommendation? I say this not to be a heavy weight of guilt around your neck, but rather, if you haven't got one, it's time to get writing. Although we find it's not us ultimately doing the writing. We, we are the, the letter. God is the one who's doing the writing. And listen, God is writing something amazing. 
and it's a shame if no one gets a chance to read it. It's more important, however, that that we have the recommendation of Christ. That that we are not just, you know, whoever led you to the Lord, you're you're some kind of a, a PR piece for them, but rather we are a recommendation for Christ. We are a letter of commendation that says He can save us. He can save you. He has saved me. St. Ignatius, first century saint, wrote this, Give unbelievers the chance of believing through you. Have you ever thought about that? Give unbelievers the chance of believing through you. Consider yourselves employed by God and your lives the language which he addresses them. So, so your, your lives are the language with which God is writing. Be mild when they are angry. Humble when they are haughty. To their blasphemy... Oppose prayer to their inconsistency, steadfast adherence to your faith. So Christ's letter is powerful, and it's written on the heart. Now he continues here. He says, uh, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You know, these letters written for these super apostles, these, these false apostles, they're written with ink. They're only as good as the words written on them, so they're not very good. But then he goes a step further. and says, not even like written, you know, chiseled into stone. What, what's the most significant thing you can think of that was chiseled into stone? Yeah, the law, the Ten Commandments. This is not, not even like that. This is even more powerful than that. This is written by the Holy Spirit and written on the tablet of human hearts. Those, those original tablets that were written by the, the finger of God, they were smashed, and they are now lost. But this is an eternal letter that is being written. And there is a far better result, we will see. And of course, what he's doing here, we'll see next time. He's, he's laying a foundation for a much bigger discussion of Moses' ministry versus his apostolic ministry. We'll look at that next time. But the point here is, of all people, you Corinthians should know the answer to my question. Who is sufficient for this? Because you are, in a sense, the answer. Just read the letter that's on my heart that's written by you. So, so such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Our sufficiency, not from us, but from God. Paul has great confidence here, but he doesn't have self-confidence. That's an important distinction. It's good for us to have confidence. But to have self-confidence is to put ourselves in the position of, say, the church of Laodicea that thought they were self-sufficient. We've got all we need. We're sitting pretty in a great place. We've got all the resources. We're feeling good. We're living large. And he says, you think, you think you're rich. You think that you're, you're full of uh, salve for the eyes and fine robes for the body, but you don't recognize that you are actually poor and pitiable and blind and naked. Paul recognizes that his confidence must not be self-confidence. It's Christ-confidence. People will even take Scripture. You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And try and turn that into some kind of manifesto of self-confidence. I can do anything, can't I? Emphasizing me and downplaying the Christ. And also, by the way, downplaying the context. 
Because what's Paul talking about in that passage? How he's learned to be content no matter what's going on, even when he's hungry and homeless and, and naked and, and, and without. He's learned to be content just when he's got a full stomach and a, a roof over his head. For after all, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is not self-confidence. It's confidence in Christ. No true Christian can take credit for his or her conversion or the new life that we live in him after we've come to faith. We must be careful with our theology that we don't do that. And even with our terminology, the way we talk, we can start to believe that we had a hand in this. We did this. I turned my life around. I gave my life over. I made a commitment. I did this. Who is it who saved you? Is it you using the instrument of Christ, or was it Christ using the instrument of your faith? The scriptures tell us it's the latter. The false prophets and apostles, on the other hand, they were in Corinth boasting of their power and their success. We're not like that sad sack Paul who's always getting flogged and everything. No, look at our clothes. Look what I'm driving. Check out my letters of recommendation. I'm amazing. That's what they were all about. It reminds me so much of so many uh, prominent so-called Christian preachers today that are all over the media. When there are, there are endless, incredibly faithful preachers and teachers of the word. Many of them with a national platform. Many of them with just a little platform. And you know what? That is far more valuable than those who say, you can do everything. Just look at this verse I took out of context. You can be rich and powerful and happy and beautiful in Christ, because that's what he wants for you. This is a letter where, where Paul says, I can tell you I'm an apostle, and part of the proof is my suffering for the faith. That's part of my, that's part of my credibility, is that I have suffered. Yeah, Paul says he's, he's the top dog, he's the chief, but he's the chief of sinners. And as an apostle, he is the least. There's a stripe of Christianity where they talk much about claiming things. Just claim it! And you'll have it, you know, whether it's a jet or a new wardrobe or a brand new car or whatever. Paul presents himself suffering for Christ and says in verse 5, he will not claim anything as coming from himself. There's an old saying, we cannot expect too little from man or too much from God. And Paul seems to be circling that idea here. Because despite all of his experience, his witness, all the miracles he's seen and performed, despite the many lives that have been changed by his ministry and the, the souls that have been freed from sin and death, he doesn't think any of it comes from him. And, you know, any great man or woman of God has the same understanding. That, that they're not doing great things for God because of who they are, but despite of who they are. This is the message of the gospel. We see it. We, you go back in the Old Testament, you see it. Remember when we went through Judges, Gideon is called. He's, he's called to be a judge, to, to deliver Israel. And, and Jesus, we understand, the angel of the Lord says to him, that you're going to be the one who does this great work. And he says, What? I'm the least in my family. My family's the least in my clan. Clan's the least in the tribe. The tribe's the least in Israel. And Israel's not doing great right now either. And he says, exactly. I can work with that. 
And when you get a huge army, I'm going to be like, nah, let's, use it. let's take it down to about 1% of that so you'll know it was me and you won't have that confidence in the flesh, that self-confidence. Rather, you'll have God-confidence and with that, you can do something. And, and we see the same thing. Look, look at Isaiah. We see Isaiah chapter 6, this beautiful vision that Isaiah has of his anointing and commissioning as a prophet. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the voice was filled with smoke. And I said... I'm up to the task. I can do any... No. I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. We see the same sort of thing with Jeremiah and Ezekiel. We see Moses at the burning bush saying, I can't do this. I stutter. I don't even know your name. What do I tell them? I, I took off when they needed me. And God says, Just trust me. Trust me, and I will be the one who will work through you. Paul had the same experience. He's on the road to Damascus and he is knocked down on his behind. And there he sits going, what is happening? I'm blind now. And God takes him, gives him his sight back and makes him an apostle and makes him sufficient to the task. Finally, verse 6. He brings us into the heart of the gospel. Our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. What is a new covenant? What does this mean? We hear this in the Scriptures. We hear this in church talk an awful lot. We talk about it when we're having the Lord's Supper. That Jesus took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Well, the new covenant... It's actually the same as the New Testament. If you ever you look at your Bible, you see that it's divided into two parts. The Old Testament, the New Testament. We could and probably should call these the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant was about the letter of the law. The New Covenant is about the Gospel. And the New Covenant is actually foreshadowed. There's like the trailer that airs on, on Super Bowl Sunday there in, in Jeremiah 31 and, and, and we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. That sound familiar? And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Our hearts, they were once as hard as those stone tablets 
that Moses, after he broke the original tablets, had to, had to chisel the law into. And yet God got a hold of them, and in this new covenant, he changes us. Ezekiel 36, writing about the new covenant, although not using the words, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. There's a contrast here between the old way and the new way. The old covenant, the old testament, and the new covenant. And throughout this passage, it's not as jump out in your face as it is in the Greek, but there are four contrasts here, four ooh-ah-lah statements. Not ooh-la-lah, Sean, ooh-ah-lah. That, that's but, or not but. So ooh means not, Allah means but, and so it's not this but that. Not this but that. That comes up four times. This letter, not by ink, but by the Spirit. Not on stone, but on the heart. Not sufficient in ourselves, but finding our sufficiency in God. And not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now this is a passage, or a half a passage, that has often been pulled out of context and twisted all different ways. As if Paul is here teaching that, that focusing on, on this book and the words in it, will kill your spiritual life and make you feel dead, whereas focusing on oh, whatever your inner self or inner life or something will make you feel alive. If that's the case, why would we believe that, since it's found in the words in this book? This is not a contrast between taking the Bible literally and going sort of free form with it and making it say what you want it to say. Rather, it's between the law as a system of salvation, which requires absolute perfect obedience. You drop the ball once, and the whole system falls in on itself. You got that on one hand, and the gospel on the other hand, where, where this is God's gift of grace to us in Christ. The law, the letter of the law, couldn't do it. Galatians 3, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Yet it's not. Romans 7, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve not under the old written code, or the old covenant, but in the new life of the Spirit. You see, the letter kills because it announces God's will, God's requirements for you, but does not grant you the ability to obey. It's like, have you ever had a boss who gave you all these responsibilities, but didn't empower you to take them on and carry them out? That's the worst kind of boss and then they come back and say, how did you not get this done? Listen, the letter of the law shows us our need for a Savior. And whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, no one was saved by keeping the letter of the law, but rather by the grace of God. The law, the letter of the law shows us, read the Sermon on the Mount, all the, the minutia of what we would have to do and not do and think and not think and say and not say in order to perfectly keep the law. Only one who has ever done that is Jesus. The gospel, on the other hand, changes the heart and grants us the ability to begin to obey. And because we have sinned and will again sin, also washes clean the stain of sin and presents us to God, perfect in His sight. That is so much better than what we see going on in the letter of the law. Death by the letter of the law is not just the, the message for people raised in the same kind of rabbinic Judaism as Paul, either. It's all of us. We all tend toward that. 
You go up to someone on the street and say, do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? Even in our post-Christian, post-religious world, most people will say, yeah, I think I will. And when you ask why, most of them will find themselves drifting back toward the letter of the law chiseled into those stone tablets and say, well, I haven't murdered anybody. Let me pick some hard ones. I haven't committed adultery, I don't think. I haven't stolen anything, or not anything big anyway. That's looking to the letter of the law. That will bring nothing but spiritual death. That is how people who are perishing smell the gospel and say, oh, it smells like death because I recognize that I am on the wrong road. But to those whose hearts have been changed and are being changed from from rock to flesh, they recognize that smell and say, oh, the smell of the gospel is good. It smells like roses. It smells like chocolate cake. It smells like everything good and right because I recognize that I cannot keep this law. And now I see in the gospel that Christ kept it for me. And that he died on a cross to bear my sins. And if I come to him in faith and turn my sins over to him in repentance, he will wash me and make me clean. And his righteousness becomes my righteousness. His obedience becomes my obedience. God will then accept me. And he begins a new work in me. He changes my heart. He's writing a letter on my heart. And I am the letter that is written for all the rest of the world to see. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. And many people, they hear this, and God will, they think, well, God accepts sinners, but not me. God accepts sinners, but uh, he, doesn't, he, he doesn't usually deal with people who, are, who have such deep-seated issues. Maybe I should take care of this. And that moves them on to God accepts sinners if, if I clean up my act, if I stop this or fix that, then he will, no, that's not the gospel. There can't be any requirements or it's not grace. The only requirement is to come to him and say, I got nothing but this sin, and here it is. And he takes it, and he takes it away, and he casts it into the, the depths of the sea, where it is as far from us as the east is from the west. And he begins a new work in us. Death by the letter of the law. Life by the gospel. We see how instead of increasing and multiplying laws, like, like look, look at under the letter of the law. You've got the Ten Commandments. Read Deuteronomy. Who doesn't like to read Deuteronomy? Am I right? As you read it, you notice each of the Ten Commandments gets its own huge section where it's like, here's all the rules that make up that commandment. And then the Pharisees, they say, well, let's hold on. Let's give each of those rules, like a bunch more rules to build like a hedge around it so we don't accidentally break the rules about the rules. It multiplies and multiplies and it crushes with just crushing weight. And yet Jesus comes from a gospel direction. He says, what's the law? I don't have to multiply it from 10 up to 30,000 or whatever. I can just take it and boil it down to love. The law of love. What the New Testament calls the law of Christ. How can he do that? Because in the changing of our heart, we are also granted the ability to keep God's commandments. We won't keep them perfectly this side of eternity, but He is leading us down that road of becoming holy we call sanctification. And we recognize that we have this story being written, and it's written in His blood, it's written on our hearts, and it's not something we're doing by following all the little minutiae of the letter of the law. And so even while using letters to write letters, Paul and all the other apostles are not ministers of the letter, but of the Spirit. Let me close with a little 
anecdote. There's a store, or there was, actually it was a very long-lasting store, founded in the 1850s in Birmingham, England, and, and it lasted all the way until 2010. It became kind of a chain of department stores. One of the first real big department stores was, it was called Lewis's. And, and early on, when they decided that they were ready to expand, because they had become such this monolithic thing, and they, they were doing well, profits were up, they were loaded, they were ready to continue expanding, and they looked out at where they could expand their store, and they found there was a, a tiny little a Quaker chapel, what they call a, a friend's meeting house. Very simple. The, the Quakers would come in and sit in a circle, uh, they didn't have all these, it was, it was a simple little meeting house. They thought, well, it's silly for that to stand in our way. Here's what we do. We write them a letter. We wow them with how enormous we are and how much money we have, and we make them an offer they can't refuse. We knock that thing down, they can build another one anywhere else. It doesn't matter. So they wrote this letter. Dear sirs, we wish to extend our premises. We see that your building is right in the way. We wish, therefore, to buy your building and demolish it so that we might expand our store. We will pay you any price you care to name. If you'll name the price, we will settle the matter as quickly as possible. That afternoon, they received a return letter, written longhand. It read, We in the Friends Community House note the desire of Lewis's to extend. We observe that our building is right in your way. We would point out, however, that we have been on our site somewhat longer than you have been on yours. And we are determined to stay where we are. We are so determined to stay that <laughs> we will happily buy Lewis's. If, therefore, you would like to name a suitable price, we will settle the matter as quickly as possible. Signed, George Cadbury. Of course, George Cadbury being the man at the time in charge of and the heir of the Cadbury chocolate. Don't get me thinking about that this time of year. Uh, and, and he could easily have bought Lewis's many times over. The point is, it's not the size of the building that counts. It's not the impressiveness of the resume or the, or the, uh, the transcripts. It's who signed the letter. You might look at your life and say, well, eh, I don't know. Paul's talking about these people who have done all these amazing things and, and, and they're, they're out there and everyone knows about their faith and they're this, big, they're this big commercial for his ministry, but I'm just going about my ordinary life. I'm, I'm, I'm not anything incredible. I'm, I'm more like that little meeting house, not that giant department store. Who signed the letter is the question. You are a letter from Christ, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. And remember that even more important is that there is a letter written in the blood of Christ that says that your sins are forgiven. We read in, in the book of Philemon about Onesimus who'd been a, a thief. He'd run away as a bondservant from the man he was serving, stealing some gold and valuables and, and ran away. And he became a Christian. And Philemon was a Christian. And Paul said, bring it back together. And so he gave him a letter of recommendation. He said, listen, Onesimus, you can't stay here. It's not right. You've stolen. You've got to make this right. He wrote out this letter. We have it in the Bible. It's the book called Philemon. And he handed it to him. And he showed up at that door, and I'm sure as he was walking up to that door, he was so scared. Because Roman law meant, oh man, that guy could bring the hammer down on him. And he walked up, and I imagine it this way. His stomach in 300 knots, knocks on the door. Undoubtedly another servant would answer. See this runaway bond slave who'd stolen 
who everybody was looking for. And now he's standing there, probably the jaw drop. Uh, what are you doing? I'm here to make it right. Please go get, please go get the master of the house. All right, I'll do it. Comes back. And I imagine that he just stood there for a second, like, ah, what do I say? And then remembered that letter. Pulled it out and said, Paul sent me. At which time, Philemon opened that letter and read it and saw that grace must prevail. Listen, we know that we have sinned against a perfect and holy God, but we have the sacrifice of Christ, and we can come to the throne and say, I've got this letter Jesus sent me, knowing that our sins are covered, knowing we will be accepted, knowing we will be forgiven, and knowing that He is still writing that letter in our lives. Not with ink, not even on stone, but on the hearts of those who love Him. Let's go to Him in prayer now. Heavenly Father, we thank You that we have the honor of being Your letter. Not only of being the aroma, the aroma of the Gospel to those who we encounter, but also being a letter for them to read. And Lord, we pray that the the content of our lives would be a letter that commends You as Lord. We know we do not live perfect lives, but we pray that our humility, our willingness to apologize and repent when we do wrong, our willingness to forgive and accept when others wrong us. Lord, all of these things would commend You as a Savior worth believing in. And Lord, we pray that You would strengthen us even this day to continue this this work of being a letter, of going out beyond the walls of this church and being read. Lord, we know that that a, a small portion of it will be opening our mouths and talking about the gospel and that that is necessary. But Lord, we also know that much of that letter is lived out silently. That the world is watching to see if we truly believe what we say. If there's anything to it or if it's all just some religious hucksterism. Lord, we pray that we would be made sufficient. We know we can claim nothing in ourselves. That we are not sufficient by ourselves. But like Paul, might we be full of confidence that we are being made sufficient. We pray all this in your holy name. Amen.